Good morning. Welcome to our Sunday worship service. Thank you for joining us, and I pray that you'll be blessed by our time together as we worship the Lord. Now, we had been hopeful this past week that with the easing of restrictions beginning here in Manitoba, that churches would be included. However, as that is unfortunately not the case, we will be continuing with our online services for the time being. However, in addition to the online services, we are also beginning to make plans towards holding Sunday morning drive-in church service. So this would entail coming in your vehicle, uh, parking in the north parking lot, tuning your radio to the FM frequency we will be broadcasting in, and listening to the sermon that I would be preaching from the top steps on the northeast side of the church. Now, it's important to note that vehicle occupants are to be from the same household and that they must remain in their vehicles for the duration of the service. I would be preaching the same sermon that will also be broadcast online, so you can still continue to tune in that way, just like this, uh, every Sunday. However, we feel it's important that we also begin to provide the opportunity for our church family to begin to regather again physically as we worship the Lord. And so if that's something that is important to you, even if that means just being parked in the same parking lot with other believers, if that has value for you, we want to provide that opportunity to be physically together, uh, even if it's for uh, a short period of time. And so we're not sure exactly if that will begin next Sunday, but we will be uh, giving more details shortly, so stay tuned uh, for that. I'd also like to pass along a reminder that this Tuesday will be our church membership meeting, and we are going to be doing that uh, exclusively online using the Zoom platform. And so that will be on Tuesday, January 26th at 7 p.m. Uh, you should have already received an email, which includes the Zoom link if you are a member. However, if you have not received that link uh, for the Zoom meeting and you would like to join in, please contact me and we'll make sure that you get connected. I'll now uh, remind you as we uh, continue to give of tithes and offerings, you can still do that through the mail. You can mail your checks to Box 969 Clarney, Manitoba, R0K1G0, make your checks payable to the Clarny Mennonite Church, or you can bring it in person. There's an offering box located in the church foyer, and you can leave your offering there. I would now invite you to bow with me, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We acknowledge that you are our God. We acknowledge that you are in control of our world, that you are sovereign, and that you are over and above all things. And Lord, we find great comfort in that as we see our world in so many different forms of chaos and turmoil and upheaval. And we know, Lord, that in this world we will have trouble, but we take heart because you have overcome the world. And so I pray, Lord, that again, as we are reminded of this truth, that you would put your children's hearts at rest, knowing that you are in control and that our lives are in your hands, and so we are safe uh, in, in your care, and we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that you would continue, continue to work in the affairs of our world. We ask that you would work in the, uh, the level of, of government and leadership in our land. We think specifically of our prime minister, for our premier, uh, and for other elected officials, Lord, who are making decisions in, uh, in these times. And specifically, Lord, as it relates 
to restrictions and, and, uh, and the virus. We just pray, Lord, that you would continue to cause them to seek you for wisdom, for guidance. And we ask, Lord, that you would help them to make wise decisions for us. And, Lord, we continue to pray uh, in, this, in this realm, Lord, for the opportunity uh, that as we see things heading in the right direction, for the opportunity to begin to regather physically as a church family. And so we continue to ask for this, Lord, and that you would provide uh, the favor and the conditions for that to take place. And so we look forward to that day. And we also ask for you to uh, keep us connected by your spirit. Uh, and, Lord, that we would seek one another out and, and contact one another in different ways, whether online, whether by phone calls or, or um, uh, visits. We just pray, Lord, that you would keep us united as a church family. And so now, Lord, as we worship you, we pray that you would be pleased by our worship. Speak through uh, the words, speak through the songs to our hearts, Lord, and may we uh, truly worship you in spirit and in truth today. We ask your blessing on the gift and giver as well, as, th as tithes and offerings are received throughout the week. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would now invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 6 and verses 15 to 23. Beginning in verse 15. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So far the reading of God's word. Now last week in part 11 of our series in Romans, we studied Romans chapter 6 verses 1 to 14, and there Paul begins teaching on the Christian's sanctification. Sanctification. It's that vital process whereby God takes the now justified Christian, the one who's been completely forgiven from the penalty of sin, and begins the lifelong work of sanctification, which is the separation of them from the practice of sin and transforming them more and more into the image of Christ. Further, we learned the three keys to our sanctification. The first two keys are positional, and the third is practical. Do you remember what those three keys are? I'll give you a moment to, to go back in the memory banks and uh, think of those three keys, and whoever you might be watching this with right now, turn to them and just rattle off those three keys, because I, I know you have them. I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. Okay, so how did you do? Did you, did you get all three? 
All right, so key number one is I have died to sin with Christ. So that's our first position. I am dead to sin. I have died to sin with Christ. That's the first key. The second key is also positional. I am now alive to God in Christ. So I'm dead to sin, but now I'm alive to God in Christ. And the third key is the practical one, is that now that I'm dead to sin, alive to God, I can now yield myself fully to God in obedience to him, my new master. And so now today, as we head into the second half of Romans chapter 6, we're going to focus in on three interlocking themes that all start with the letter, letter L, which hopefully will help us to remember them. The three L's, the law, license, and liberty. Law, license, and liberty. Now let me just state right now that, yes, this is another sermon on sin. So if you're tired of hearing about sin, and you just don't want to feel any conviction today, then I suggest that you just turn it off and tune out right now. However, if you want to hear the truth of God's word, then keep listening. Because the true gospel of Jesus Christ is not designed to entertain us. It's not designed to pat us on the back and make us feel good about ourselves. It's not designed to just give us a few self-help tips on how you can be your best you. No, the gospel, the true gospel, confronts our sin, convicts us of the need to repent of it, and then further, it empowers us to actually leave our sin behind, and further, to continue the work of sanctification, transforming us into the image of Christ a new life in him. Because you see, this is what we all need. This is what our world needs. People say that our world right now has a virus problem. People say that right now our world has a political problem. People say our world has an environmental problem. But the fact is, the real truth is, that our world has a sin problem. And it always has. That is the true problem that ails our world and plagues us, is our sin. And there's not a single doctor, politician, or environmentalist who can fix this problem. And that is why, like Paul, I agree, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. This is the solution. It is the gospel. It is what our world desperately needs now more than ever. So we need to sit at the feet of the gospel of Jesus Christ and listen and let it convict us and let it do its good work of sanctifying us because my friends in this world this is what we need right now as believers is to be sanctified more and more into the image of Christ that we can stand firm in this world that so desperately needs him. Let's pray. Father we thank you for this word and we thank you most of all for the gospel. It is good news but Lord, it's not easy news to hear because it, it confronts us in our sin and it convicts us that we can't stay there. But thank you that through this gospel and through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you bring us to the place of repentance where we repent of this sin and we turn to you in faith and you wonderfully forgive us and begin that work of sanctifying us, removing that sin from us and transforming us into Christ. And so I pray, Lord, 
By the power of your gospel and the Holy Spirit, speak through your word, through me, your servant, to this end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story told of a pastor who was pulled over by a police officer for speeding. And full disclaimer right here, right now, it wasn't me. It wasn't. I'm, I'm telling you the truth. My hand is on the Bible. It was not me. Not that I've never received a speeding ticket before. It's just not this story. So anyhow, with that disclaimer out of the way, this pastor, another pastor, not me, decided that he was going to try to play the pastor card with this police officer. And so as the officer came to the window, uh, the, the pastor handed him his license and registration, and he looked up to him, and he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And while the officer just smiled, gave him a nod, took his license and registration and returned to his cruiser. Now the pastor was hopeful at his response that perhaps this had worked and he'd get off with only a warning. But his hopes were soon dashed as he saw the officer return with a speeding ticket in hand. Then handing the ticket through the window, the officer said to him, Now go and sin no more. Now, this story leads us right into our theme in Romans 6 and verse 15, where Paul asks a very similar question to the one he asked at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. There in verse 1, he asked, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Or in the case of this pastor, shall we go on speeding? In verse 15, now Paul asks, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Now, though the question is phrased similarly, there is a very key distinction. For in verse 1, the question was based off of Paul's previous statement in chapter 5, verse 20. That where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So there Paul addressed the argument of this deceptive fallacy that for a Christian to deliberately keep on sinning, This was actually a good thing because that meant that God could keep on giving more grace and displaying more grace. And and so Paul confronts this head on and shows that this is a complete misunderstanding of why God has given his grace in the first place. And that in fact doing so is treating God's grace as though it were something cheap rather than something precious. Now, here in verse 15, Paul is again basing the question off of his previous statement, this time in chapter 6, verse 14, where he had said, because you are not under law, but under grace. So here Paul is addressing yet another deceptive fallacy, one which argues that since the Christian has positionally died to sin with Christ, and that now the law, the law, the law of Moses, the law that condemned us because of our sin, it has lost its power to now condemn us because we are alive to God in Christ. So the law's power has been removed from us. It has no more power or authority over us. And so the the fallacy is that because of this, that then gives us, not unlike the famous agent 007, a license to sin. A license to sin. So similar to the speeding pastor in the opening story, who was definitely not me, by the way, does being under God's mercy mean that the law ceases to have any relevance 
And that now we are just at complete liberty to sin as we like and do as we please without any consequences? Well, in Christian theology, this type of belief and behavior is known as license, or as I like to call it, a license to sin. Now, it's one of the most peculiar yet consistent traits of mankind that our pendulum always seems to swing from one extreme position to another. It's just human nature. We always seem that when it's time to change, we don't go somewhere in between. We always go from one extreme position to another. And so evidently, for some of the Jewish Christians living in Rome that Paul was writing to, their pendulum had swung from the one extreme position of the law, now swinging all the way over to the other extreme position of license. For having been liberated from the bondage of the law and having been freed from being under its legalistic yoke of having to try to earn their salvation for so long, they now are using their newfound liberty by being alive in Christ. They're using their newfound liberty in Christ as license to sin, to indulge in the sinful behaviors that the law had previously barred them from doing. And of this, A.W. Tozer once wrote, to escape the error of salvation by works, we have fallen into the opposite error of salvation without obedience. Salvation without obedience. License. This error in its most extreme form brazenly says, I've been saved from hell, so now I'm free to live like the devil. Now, of course, the majority of Christians will rightly reject this sort of attitude. But there was another, far more subtle form of this same poisonous attitude, which is sadly quite common. Of this, J. Vernon McGee in his commentary on Romans writes, Vincent once said to Godet, There is a subtle poison which insinuates itself into the heart of even the best Christian. It is the temptation to say, Let us sin, not that grace may abound, but because it abounds. Let us sin, not that grace may abound, but because it abounds. In other words, we won't keep sinning in big and overt ways to force God to be gracious, to somehow put it on display. But rather, rather what we'll do is we'll keep right on sinning in hidden and more subtle ways because we think, well, God's gracious. So I can just get away with it and keep doing it. I don't have to change. And so rather than truly committing ourselves to doing the hard work of sanctification, of forsaking sin and living for Christ, of choosing to die daily to the flesh and to sinful desires and my pet sins, I'll just let them hang around because God's grace will cover them anyways. Do you see how, how deceptive this can be? How easily it can sneak into even the most committed Christian's life? So let me ask you, have you ever thought this way before? Have you ever thought this way before? Now, maybe not consciously. Maybe you've never actually had those exact words cross your mind. So let me just ask it another way, which might get to the heart of the matter. Have you ever behaved that way? Have you ever behaved that way? 
Now, I will be the first to confess. I have. I have behaved that way before. There have been times along the road of my Christian journey where God had to confront me head on. And though I would have vehemently rejected ever harboring this attitude, my behavior betrayed me. And the Holy Spirit convicted me that I was in fact using my liberty in Christ as a license to sin. Yeah, not in big overt ways, but in sneaky, subtle ways where I just thought, it's no big deal, I'll just let them hang around. And the Spirit convicted me. He confronted me with the truth. And so, there's only one solution. Either we reject the Spirit, we harden our hearts, or we confess. And so I had to confess. And more importantly, repent. Turn away from not only the, the, the behavior but also of the attitude that enabled and justified the behavior to keep on going. Because whatever form this insidious attitude takes, whether overt or subtle, Paul asks, shall we keep on sinning because we are not under the law but under grace? Here's his answer. By no means. God forbid. God forbid. Paul's emphatic rebuke of this attitude should make it crystal clear to every one of us that though we may not think much of continuing to dabble in what we think of as little sins, God simply will not tolerate it. You see, when God sanctifies his children, he's not just interested in improving us into some better version of ourselves, into a better you. No, God is interested in nothing less than complete transformation into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Without spot or blemish, blameless, without sin like him. This is God's goal for each one of his children. It's incredible to think what lengths God is willing to go to to achieve this end. Of this, A.W. Tozer wrote, We Christians must look sharp that our Christianity does not simply refine our sins without removing them. The big danger is that we assume that we have been delivered from our sins when we have in reality only exchanged one kind of sin for another. We must, for instance, be careful that our repentance is not simply a change of location. Whereas we once sinned in the far-off country amongst the swine herds, we are now chumming with religious persons considerably cleaner and much more respectable in appearance, to be sure, but no nearer to the true heart of purity than we were before. The will of God is that sin should be removed, not merely refined. The will of God is that sin should be removed, not merely refined. And so Paul proceeds to explain why in verses 16 to 18. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now here Paul is returning to the already established analogy of slave and master. 
And he's making the argument that your true master is the one you obey. It's not the one you say you serve. It's not the one you say you're obeying. It's the one you actually obey in word, in deed, and in action. So if you obey sin, then Paul is saying sin is your master and death is your wage. But if you obey God, then he is your new master and eternal life with him is your reward. He famously ends the chapter in verse 23 with one of the most quoted Bible verses of all time. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So which master are you following? Which master are you following? Paul says, don't tell me, show me. Which one are you obeying with your life, with your actions? For the master you obey is the one that has your true allegiance. Now just to be clear, Paul isn't teaching some new form of legalism here or saying that a believer will never sin. It's not what he's saying and we're going to see that uh, especially in the next chapter. The believer can still sin. But what, what Paul is talking about here is the attitude of intentionally and willfully choosing to keep using Christian liberty as a license to keep on sinning as an established pattern of one's life. In verse 19, Paul continues, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. Now, for a good example of this, you can take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. And the account of the woman caught in adultery there. In verses 2 to 5, John sets the scene of this very familiar story. Let me read it for you. Early the next morning, Jesus went back to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery, and they made her stand before them all. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In our law, Moses commanded that such a woman must be stoned to death. Now, what do you say? Now, of course, we know this whole scene was a setup. It was a trap by the Pharisees in another one of their attempts to somehow snare Jesus into either forcing him to agree with them or to break the law of Moses. Now, Jesus, of course, was far too wise to fall for their tricks, and, and so he instead just ignores their question altogether. And John describes him in the next verses as beginning to stoop down and write in the dust on the ground with his finger. And, he, and he, we don't know what he's doing, if he's doodling, if he's writing things. John simply doesn't tell us what Jesus is writing in the dust with his finger. But once he's finished and he stands up, his reply to the Pharisees is very telling. He says to them, If any of you is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Now some scholars think it's possible that Jesus was writing out the Ten Commandments in the dust. And that as he, as he was doing so, he would have possibly been writing the names of the Pharisees next to the commandments that they were guilty of breaking. 
And, and so it's possible that this is the way that they were so convicted. But whatever the case, and whatever Jesus was writing, it's clear that whatever he did was so convicting to them that from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones to the ground and slunk away until one by one they were gone and only Jesus and the woman were left standing there. Now, what was that woman thinking at this point? Again, John doesn't tell us. But we can only imagine what a terrifying and utterly stressful situation it was for this woman to not only have shamefully been caught in the very act of adultery, but then forcibly dragged by angry men to stand before Jesus as the centerpiece of a debate on whether or not she should be stoned to death right then and there. Now, there's no argument made on whether or not she was actually guilty, for that was already established. The only question that remained was, what would the penalty be for her sin? What was the penalty? The law of Moses demanded the penalty to be death. For truly, the wages of sin is death. And so to be condemned to death is, in fact, what she deserved. But instead, Jesus asked her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replied. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Now there is grace and truth in everything that Jesus said and did. He first extended grace towards that woman by saying, then neither do I condemn you. And then second, he declared to her the absolute truth. Now go and leave your life of sin. So what do you suppose that woman did next? Do you think that having been pardoned, liberated, and set free by grace, that she obeyed Jesus and in fact left her life of sin? Or do you suppose that she used her freedom and her liberty to just go right back to the bed of the adulteress? John doesn't tell us. He leaves that open. We don't know what she did next. But we would all hope that out of sheer gratitude, she obeyed Jesus and did leave her life of sin for good. Returning now to Romans 6, verses 19 to 22, we read what Paul's instructions to that woman and, yes, to us would be. Beginning in the middle of verse 19, Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefits you reap lead to holiness, and the result is eternal life. So now listen. What did sin ever do for that woman caught in adultery? What did it do for her? Other than perhaps some short-lived pleasure of instant gratification, what benefit did she receive? All it earned her was a shame-filled life that set her on the broad road towards her own destruction. 
I've shared before a famous story told by Paul Harvey about one way that Inuit hunters used to kill wolves. Listen to what he said. First, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh, frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue. Nor does he recognize that his insatiable thirst is being satisfied now with his own blood. His appetite continues to crave more and more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. This is exactly what sin does to us. It lures us in, it fascinates us, and then it assassinates us. It leads to death. So let me ask you, my friends, what has sin ever done for you? What have you gained by it? What what has it benefited your life? For every single last thing that sin has ever promised you, no matter what pleasure it promised you, no no matter what, what thing, what grand thing that it said, if you just do this, if you just have that, if you just think this, it'll somehow be worth it. Every last promise is in fact a lie straight from the devil himself. For sin's true payment is nothing but shame, guilt, bondage, heartache, brokenness, ever-increasing levels of wickedness which will keep dragging you in deeper and deeper and deeper just to get the same fix. It's an addiction that will have no bottom once you start going down its slippery slope. And the final payoff is the same for everyone. Physical and spiritual death forever separated from God. So let me ask you another obvious question with a self-evident answer. If, like the woman caught in adultery, you have met Jesus, you have met Jesus, and he has likewise extended to you his wonderful grace and truth, if Christ has liberated you from the yoke of slavery to sin, And he has said to you, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Why would you ever want to go back? Why? There's an old story told of Abraham Lincoln. That he once went down to the slave market to buy a slave girl. And as the poor slave girl stood up on the auction block, she looked at the tall white man with the beard who was bidding on her. And she figured looking at him that he was just another typical white man that was going to buy her and use her and abuse her. And Lincoln soon won the bid and now the slave girl had become his legal property. Legal property. She belonged to him and he could do with her whatever he saw fit. But as he was walking away now with his 
new property. He then turned to that slave girl, and he held out some papers to her, and he said, Young lady, you are free. Completely surprised and confused, she, she didn't know what to say, and finally she, she just asked, Well, free, what does this mean? And Lincoln's answer was simple. It means you are free. Does that mean, she said, that I can say whatever I want to say? Lincoln said, yes, my dear, you can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean I can be whatever I want to be? He said, yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? And Lincoln said again, yes, my dear, you can go wherever you want to go. You are free. And then the girl, now with tears of joy streaming down her face, said, Then I'll go with you and serve you until I die. My friends, that girl's story is our story. For just as surely as Lincoln saw that poor slave girl held captive in chains, and then motivated by a heart of love, willingly paid the price to set her free, so too the Lord Jesus has done that for each one of us who believe in him by faith. He willingly paid the price for us upon the cross with his own blood, bought and paid for. He really and truly liberated us, And he says to us, you are free, really and truly free. And yes, that means we are free to say whatever we want to say. Free to be whoever we want to be. Free to go wherever we want to go. And so out of hearts overflowing with gratitude and love, like that girl, we willingly pledge our allegiance to our new master, who holds us not in chains of bondage, but rather in arms of love. And so like the girl said to Lincoln, now we may say to Jesus that I'll go with you and serve you until the day I die. And so thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. For you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you set us free, that you paid the price, and that we are free. And as your word tells us, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And now, Lord, like for that woman caught in adultery, like for that slave girl. Oh, Father, the most natural response from hearts who have been truly captured by your love, we would simply say, then I'll go with you and serve you until the day I die because you are a master worthy of my life, worthy of my allegiance, because you have done it all. You have saved my soul. And more than that, you have set me free from sin, from death, and from that downward path that leads to destruction and heartache. Thank you that you've set us on the upward path, the one that leads to everlasting life. And yes, it's a narrow path, but Lord, it is a good path because you walk it with us. 
And so I pray, Lord, for everyone listening today, where there is conviction, Lord, may it lead to repentance. For it is in repentance that they can find that just as with the woman caught in adultery, your grace is there and it is more than enough. That you will say to each one of us, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And you enable just that, Lord. And so we thank you, Father, for this word. We thank you that it is for our good. And we pray, Lord, that we would embrace it as from you. And that we would not just give lip service to this gospel, but that, Lord, in our actions, we would truly show the world that you are our master. In every way, we belong to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to bow with me for the benediction. Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. May God bless you. Have a very good week. And Lord willing, we'll see you again right here next week.